those of you who were raised in a background where your spiritual formation and education came in the form of catechism may recognize that pattern of question and answer, answer uh, as you are learning and memorizing the doctrines of faith that make us strong. I think that's our only catechetical hymn, and I am pretty sure I've never said that phrase in the pulpit before, but that is our only catechetical hymn that I know of. I'm going to probably try to say that a few more times this week. All right. <clears throat> I am excited to be able to preach the Word of God to you every day, but I think even more so uh, when we come out of songs, hymns like we've sung this morning that draw our hearts in, draw our attention, not only our affections, but our minds to the Word of God, to the centrality of Christ, so that God receives all the glory and praise for His glorious grace to us in Christ. We'll be focusing on that reality this morning, and I want to begin by asking, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but just ask your own self. Have you ever felt inadequate? or unworthy of God? Have you ever wondered whether you're even a Christian? Many of us have. Many of us wrestle with that regularly. Have you struggled with a fear of losing your salvation? Maybe not doing enough to please God? Today I want you to see what the Lord says about those fears through the pen of Paul. We have... Uh, been, been walking through and we haven't gotten very far in our journey because we're at this beginning place and before we move forward we need to make sure we've got a strong foundation under us. And as we're working through Ephesians, we're, we are in Ephesians chapter 1 looking at the first 14 verses of that chapter and it's, it's necessary for us before we move any further through the book to be able to understand what exactly Paul is talking about when he uses terms like chosen and predestined and, and those types of things. So we took a week last week to just kind of look at biblically what does that mean. It, and it, it ultimately means that God has set his affections on us in advance. He has chosen us and made us secure in Christ. And today, we're going to be looking at that idea of being in Christ. Not only being in Christ, but in the reality that all God is doing, He is doing in Christ. So, as we work through the book, we've seen the, the, the theme of the book. We've talked about the, the uh, main idea, the core reality of this first passage, this first section. So we want to look through those lenses as we dig into the topics here. So God's great purpose is to bring all things together under his kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. And to that end, he displays his glory by his grace to his church. Understand that God's grace is given to his church. And the specific grace that we're talking about here, the grace that he gives in Christ, is only given to his church, to those who are his, to those who he has chosen and set apart for himself. There's a common grace that God gives to all, 
That's why we're all able to be alive physically. This common grace is God causing the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God giving us safety and security and prosperity, whether or not we are in Christ. But the special grace that goes beyond the grave, the grace that changes everything, the Lord gives only to his kingdom people. And as he displays this glory of his grace to his church in Christ, we need to see that the destiny of his chosen ones is as settled as his own sovereignty. In other words, God's glorious grace is shown in his relationship to his people. And God's grace to us in Christ unites believers to Christ, making us his through Christ as he brings all things together under Christ. Now, that's a lot of words. We want to see how that plays together in our lives. So our core reality today as we look at Ephesians 1, this core reality is what the one thing that you want to take away today. If you miss everything else, remember this. All that God does to give life to his people, he does in Christ, leaving no room for fear. All right, let's, let's kind of let our minds settle into that. And I, if, I, if I did this right, you'll see that develop as we work through the text, right? So you'll be able to see the core reality that what God is saying to us here. And that core reality is that all, God, all that God does to give life to his people, he does in Christ, leaving no room for fear. Everything that that God has done, everything that God is doing, everything that God will do in the life of the believer is bound up in Christ. God is working out his glorious plan of reconciliation by giving us everything we need for real life in Christ. Fears, feelings, failures, they don't matter when our identity and destiny are settled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So by the time we get done here today, understanding that main idea, that core reality, we want to get to a place where you can understand why the doubts, the fears, the wondering if I'm good enough, or if I've done enough, or if I've worked hard enough, or if I've trusted enough, if I have enough faith, all of that is meaningless, senseless. Because it doesn't hinge on you. It hinges on Christ. With that, let's start moving through the text here. First off, notice, God has made us His in Christ. God has made us His in Christ. Look at verse 1. Yes, verse 1, the greeting. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this particular verse and in this particular edition of the NIV says holy ones. If you have another translation, it may say saints, which means holy ones. That idea of holy doesn't mean maybe what we often make it out to mean, somebody who's super pious and, and is extra good and is better than somebody else. And when we look at saints, we often 
think of people that the church has marked and set apart as unique. Maybe they have a, an extra measure of perfection in them. That's not what saints means or what holy ones means biblically. What it means is those who are set apart for God, called out, set apart for himself. Right out of the gate we see that God has made us his in Christ. So before we can even understand what comes in these following verses, we need to make sure that we are in him, that we are his. All the stuff that we're going to see here is talking about God doing this. God choosing, pouring out grace, adopting us, redeeming us, making us His in all of these gracious ways that He does. All that's left for us, our faith part, we, we a lot of times emphasize the, the believing, the faith, as if it is all us. And we have to take hold of it. The more you read the Bible, the more you see over and over again, ubiquitously, throughout all of it, inescapably, my faith doesn't make anything happen. Ever. My faith is simply getting on board with what is already real accepting as true that which is already true. There are a lot of teachers in our world who will tell you, if you believe, you can make this happen. You can bring to fruition, you can bring to reality that which you desire if you just believe enough, if you have enough faith. I want to tell you that is absolutely counter to the Bible. It's 180 degrees opposite of what we are taught. The kind of faith that we see in Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, but also throughout the Old Testament, what we see over and over is a faith that is a surrender. A surrender. Now you might not like that, that term and probably none of us do in our flesh. When I say probably, that's trying to soften it, because none of us do in our flesh. We want to be in charge. We want to have some role in controlling our destiny. We want to do something so that God's love for us is deserved. We want to earn grace. And grace, by definition, can't be earned. What's more, we are utterly incapable of being who we need to be to be right with God. You have zero chance, zero, ever, of doing anything in yourself that's going to garner God's attention in a positive way. Because everything that falls short of His perfection, His glorious standard, is sin. My very best efforts if it is less than God, it's sin. If I'm doing it for motives that are not for Him, it's sin. If it's tainted in any way, it's sin. Are you getting a dismal picture yet? Because you should be. Debbie, this is what you were mentioning when, you, when we were talking this morning before the service, that we're not capable of loving God 
the way God loves us. We're not made for that. We're not able. We are less than him. And our sin, which flows from that, keeps us from him. But God, and this is what we see throughout the rest of this text, God has done the doing that needed to get done. Everything covered in Christ. So there is nothing left for you and me to do. Our salvation is Christ plus nothing. Christ alone is our hope in life and death. Ultimately, all I have is Christ. All I have to do is surrender my will to His will. Surrender my thinking to the truth of God's Word. Surrender my very existence to the reality of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, In light of God's mercy... He's just spent 11 chapters telling us about our separation from God and God's grace to us in Christ and the the sacrifice that Christ made in dying in our place. All we have to do is believe that He is who He says and that He did what He said and that He makes us ours. In view of God's mercy, Paul writes in Romans 12, Just make yourself a living sacrifice. Give up yourself. Surrender to the reality of God. When you do that, that is believing, saving faith. If you haven't done that, I want to encourage you right now, if if you believe that God is who He says and does what He says, Just let go of your resisting. That idea of surrender, it means stop fighting Him. He's already done it. Stop resisting Him. If you feel Him calling you, if you have a desire to know God, that desire doesn't come from you, it comes from Him. Stop fighting it. Don't harden your heart. Release yourself to it. When you do that, Everything needed for your new, real, eternal life has already been done in Christ completely. No hidden fees, no asterisks, no caveats. If you believe enough to identify publicly with Christ and submit to Him as your Lord, God says you're saved in Him. You're reborn in Him. You're a brand new person with a brand new identity in Him, free from all condemnation, resurrected with Jesus, and able to live a new life in Him. God has made us His in Christ. If you will just stop resisting, receive Him. You cannot come to God thinking you offer Him anything. If you think you're bringing anything to the table, You have no part of Christ and of God. If you want to receive Christ and be a child of God, you have to come with empty hands to be able to receive the gift that He's giving. Stop trying to clean yourself up to impress God. 
when you give yourself to him, he'll take care of the cleaning up. Rest assured, he will, for all those that he has set apart as his, make you progressively more like Christ. That's the destiny that we have. If you have received Christ, if you are in him, he has predestined you to be holy and blameless, as we'll read in a moment. God has made us His in Christ. Let's take a look at why Paul wants you to be confident in that salvation, boldly assured of your standing with God and your destiny in glory with Him. Excuse me. God has given us everything in Christ. God has made us His in Christ. Secondly, we see that God has given us everything in Christ. Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's given us everything. Everything that matters. The things that we chase down here, they're, they're paltry. They're slender and small and weak and frail and cannot last. They cannot satisfy. But God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. Because He has given us the blessings of Christ, everything that is spiritually true of Jesus as God's Son is now spiritually true of us in Jesus as we'll see going through this. God has given us everything in Christ. Next, God has chosen us in Christ. I won't spend a lot of time here because we spent a lot of time here last week. My wife chuckles. God has chosen us in Christ. Verse verse 4. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. God made us His in Christ. He has given us everything in Christ. And He has chosen us in Christ. We can know that our relationship with God is secure because it hinges on God's choice. Not ours. Let that sink in. Your salvation is not about you choosing God, but God choosing you. And if God has chosen you, you will, as we saw last week, choose Christ. Jesus said, all all who the Father gives me are mine. And anyone who comes to me, I will never drive out. I will never cast away. It's not a matter of whether or not you are allowed to come to Christ. Sometimes the devil gets that into our brains. Well, what if I'm not among the elect? What if I, what if I want to choose Christ and I can't? I'm not allowed to. That's not how it works. The bottom line is none of us are able to choose Christ in ourselves. God's grace to us, as we saw in Romans last week, as we see here in Ephesians today, God's grace to us allows us then to have the faith 
to choose him. God grants us repentance. God draws us to the Son. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But if you come, that means that you have been chosen. And you are in him when you receive him. It's God's choice. It's not ours. So I can't mess it up. Next we see, not only has God given us everything in Christ, and chosen us in Christ, God has adopted us in Christ. God has adopted us in Christ. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you understand that God is excited about choosing you? He didn't choose you because you checked the right boxes. God, in his sovereign will, decided for his pleasure, the same reason for which all things are created, to settle his grace on you, to set you apart, to adopt you as his child, and again, the, the, the idea of adoption in Roman culture, as Paul is writing this letter, the idea of adoption is that you have the full rights of the naturally born son. In other words, you are receiving in Christ from God the exact same inheritance, the exact same spiritual blessings, the exact same standing with God as Jesus himself. That's the purpose that Paul puts this in here for. He wants you to know that in Christ you have received, not through your own doing, not through your ambition or your, uh, your choice to try to be pious and work your way up and muster up good faith and goodwill. No. In Christ, God has chosen you, set his heart upon you, and decided in advance that you would receive every spiritual thing in Christ. You have the full standing of the very Son of God. God has adopted us in Christ. If my adoption is God's doing, then nothing can be my undoing. The relationship that God initiated with me is as certain as God's own character. If God cannot change, then my standing with God cannot change. Because it doesn't depend on me. I didn't choose him. I didn't adopt him as my father. He adopted me as his son. God has made us His in Christ. He's given us everything in Christ. He's chosen us in Christ, adopted us in Christ. Next notice, God has redeemed us in Christ. God has redeemed us in Christ. Down to verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 
What a powerful truth. Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for us. In other words, he was the sacrifice that paid the debt, that, that cleared the accounts. We call that theologically substitutionary atonement. Paul details that in Romans 3. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right with God, freely by His grace given to us in Christ, whom He made an atoning sacrifice. If you have a, a good literal translation of the Bible, it might say something like the propitiation for our sins. It's more than just covering our sins. It's more than just wiping them away. The propitiation means He appeased God's righteous wrath. Judgment is our natural state. We'll see that a little more in chapter 2 and later in chapter 1, but especially in chapter 2. We will see that that's our natural state in ourselves. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. But in the redemption, Jesus Christ takes all of that wrath. He steals from us our sin. And he gives to us the righteousness and glory of God. One of my favorite verses to quote, you've heard me if you've been here say this before, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became my sin became your sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. All Him. I had nothing to do with that other than to receive it. The only thing I contribute is the sin that made it necessary. There's no cost left to pay, no wrath left for those who are in Christ because it all fell on Christ. The best picture of this in its fullness, in my mind, is Isaiah 53. It's the best picture of the New Testament is found in the Old Testament. Remember that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. As we see the Gospel of Christ hidden in the Old Covenant, but revealed to us clearly in the New Covenant, we see in Isaiah 53 that Jesus the Messiah, the suffering servant, takes our sin on himself. And God visits on him our iniquity, so that by his stripes we are healed. God has redeemed us in Christ. Notice next, God has poured out grace on us in Christ. God has poured out grace on us in Christ. Verses 6 to 8 make this abundantly clear. Having said that He predestined us for adoption to, to sonship through Jesus Christ, full legal standing as His children, in accordance with His pleasure and will, we see in verse 6 that all of this is to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us if you, have a, if you have heaven's preferred 
translation, the 84 edition of the NIV, it will say that it, he lavished it on us. He lavished this grace on us in the beloved, in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches, the vast treasure of God's grace that he lavished on us. He poured it out on us abundantly, overflowingly. This is the power and the abundance of God's grace to us in Christ. God has poured out His grace on us in Christ. I'm going to just cheat a little bit and go to a chapter we're going to see later on. Chapter 3 of Ephesians. After Paul develops this idea over the next couple of chapters here, he, he gets caught up in it. He gets just kind of blown away by the grace of God and the measure of all the fullness of God given to us. And he just bursts forth in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 with this doxology. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Immeasurably more. He is not only able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, that's the approach God takes to pouring out His grace on us. He's not, you know, being real careful not to spill and let's make sure it doesn't go over the top. Man, He's just dumping grace. Big, messy, sloppy, over everything kind of grace. It's the way I like butter and syrup on my pancakes, right? Don't skimp on the syrup. Because I'm going to have to come back for more every time I go to a restaurant. Give you one of these little things. Bring it. Let's, how about you lavish some syrup on these pancakes? Otherwise, this is just bread. You know, it's just dry. If we want it to be good, the secret to life is butter. Get it all on there. God approaches grace with us like butter and syrup on your pancakes. There's no shortage of it. By the way, if, if you're one of these healthy people that's really skimpy on that or you're going to put something sugarless on there, I'll pray for your soul. But try it so you understand God's grace. Get real with this. All right. Enough pancake talk. God has poured out his grace on us in Christ. Don't miss out on what he shows us in verses 9 and 10, that God has established his kingdom in Christ. God has established his kingdom in Christ. We see this uh, continue into verses 22 and 23. In fact, I'm going to start there and then come back to verses 9 and 10. We see the, the picture of God's great purpose of bringing all things together under his kingdom rule in Christ. In verses 22 and 23, where it says that God placed all things says it in the past as if it is already in place, as if it has already happened, because it is a settled matter. It is already true, and it will manifest when the time has fully come. God 
has placed all things under his feet and appointed him, Christ, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Back to 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. What is that good will, that good pleasure, his purpose? What is it that he will bring into effect when the times reach their fulfillment? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God has established his kingdom in Christ. God has ordained the church to be the foretaste of his kingdom rule, which will be put into effect when the time has fully come. Don't think that the, the kingdom rule of God is just going to be something that Jesus brings in when he returns, and that's the end of it. We are the beginning, the foretaste of that, the previews of coming attractions, the hors d'oeuvres to the main course. We, the church, are to display the reality of God's will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's us. To borrow from Eugene's, Eugene Peterson's message translation, it's not that the church is peripheral to the world. It's that the world is peripheral to the church. Christ himself is the fullness of everything he fills everything in every way. He is the fullness of the deity in bodily form we see in Colossians. And we, the church, are the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. We bring God's will to the earth now. And when Christ returns when the time has fully come to establish his literal reign on earth, we, the church, will reign with him. We are seated with him now in the heavenly places. And he has given us every spiritual blessing in those heavenly places in Christ. God has established his kingdom in Christ. Now, in verses 11 and 12, Paul reiterates the point that he's been making throughout this, emphasizing that all this is equally true for everyone, regardless of background. I'll read it with you, but we're not going to spend time here because we'll see it again later in this epistle, and we'll develop it there. But notice what he says in verses 11 and 12. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will set apart in advance, chosen by God, in, in order that we, he's speaking here of the Jewish believers, those coming out of Israel, out of Judah, the people of God in the Old Covenant, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you, Gentiles, implied here, you who are not of Israel, who don't have that background, also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, Gentiles, right along with the Jews, 
you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Which brings us to our next point. God has guaranteed our future in Christ. God has guaranteed our future in Christ. He has marked us in Christ. He has sealed us to Himself in Christ. He has guaranteed our future in Christ. God chose us for adoption and guaranteed our inheritance in Christ. We can rest confidently in the destiny He has given us. The one who chose to adopt us will never let us go. In case you haven't grasped it, there are two key words in the whole sermon. Because there are two key words in the whole text. If you know them, say them with me. In Christ. If you don't know them, read the front of your program. It's really clear. And then say them with me. In Christ. We need to drill that into our brains, into our hearts, so that the fears that the devil tries to get into our heads are immediately eradicated when we cling to the truth that it isn't about me. It's about Christ. It's not about how good I am, but about how good Christ is. It's not about how faithful I am, but about how faithful Christ is. God, who has done all of this, has united us to Christ when we believed. He's the reason we believe. And upon our believing, He unites us to the Son puts us on equal footing, equal standing with the Son. Be very careful not to let your systematic theology, your doctrinal, denominational teaching and thinking trump what the Bible says. Look what the Scripture says. When you are in Christ... There is not one single dadgum thing that the devil can do to stop it. You can't blow it. Nothing can separate you. You are his. And when God says it, it's so. Settled and done. I want to wrap this up. And I want to hopefully read a couple of passages for you as we do that. Our last point here. God has given us reason to be confident of our salvation in Christ. God has given us reason to be confident of our salvation in Christ. Notice, all that God does to give life to His people, He does in Christ, leaving no room for fear. He's made us His in Christ. He's given us everything in Christ. He's chosen us in Christ, adopted us in Christ, redeemed us in Christ. God has poured out His grace on us in Christ. He's established His kingdom in Christ. And He's guaranteed our future in Christ. So you better make sure you're in Christ. 
Because that's the only place that these things are true. If you are separated from God and have not received His free gift of salvation, you know it, you believe it, you haven't surrendered to it. You're still resisting. You're still fighting Him. Man, why would you do that? If you believe it, if you know that it's true, if you know that God is God, that He is holy and you're not, and your sins separate you from Him, and you want to be in a relationship with Him, all you've got to do is let go and take hold of Jesus. And God will make all of this true of you. God has given us reason to be confident of our salvation in Christ. All this is from God. In Christ. Therefore, our salvation does not hinge on our ability to hold on to God, but God's ability to do what He says in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me read that again because I I feel like I stumbled and I don't want you to miss it. Our salvation does not hinge on our ability to hold on to God. It hinges on God's ability to do what He says in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not our ability, but Christ's. You can't be less deserving of God's grace because you're already undeserving. You're unable to be His. But it's not our ability, it's Christ's. Not our righteousness, but Christ's. You can't fail because you blew it and you sinned. Is your lack of righteousness bigger than the righteousness of Christ? When you fail and you stumble and the devil says, See, you're no good. You might as well just give up. God says, I have set my affections on you. I have made you mine. Who dares to come against my child? So you can say to the devil, yeah, you're right. I'm every wicked thing you said and more. But Jesus took all the wrath of God for me, and I stand before God clean in Him. Not our worthiness, but Christ's. Christ alone is worthy. And God has joined us to Him. When we receive Him by faith, God places us in the full standing of the very Son of God. Knowing that salvation is all of God, I have nothing to fear. Because I am in Christ, I am accepted. Fully accepted in Christ. I have a settled identity. That's who I am. I'm no longer Jew or Gentile or black or white or or educated or uneducated or wealthy or poor. None of those things matter. All of the the gender identity stuff that we talk about all the time, none of this stuff matters. What matters is am I in Christ or am I not? When I am in Christ, I surrender myself to Christ. And that new identity in Him governs everything that I do. 
and I am no longer capable of walking contrary to God's word comfortably. Don't get me wrong, we still struggle with sin. But when I'm in Christ, I'm never going to be okay with that again. The foul things that come out of my mouth, they don't feel right. I might still have that habit. I have to battle that habit. But it's not me anymore, so it doesn't ring true. It doesn't sound right from the mouth of a saint. When I am living outside of God's will, and I'm doing things for my pleasure rather than His, I'm no longer comfortable with that. Because I have a new identity. I've been changed. I don't get accepted by getting right. I am accepted. So it changes the trajectory of every part of my life. Because I'm in Christ, I'm secure. Not only do I have a settled identity, I have a settled future. Nothing can touch me because I belong to Him. Whatever harm, whatever damage comes into my life in this temporal world is part of God's chisel shaping me to make me who I need to be so that I can be fully sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ. Because my destiny is to be holy and blameless before Him. And every negative thing from my perception that comes into my life is not a negative thing from God's perception. It's His tool. It's what he's using to discipline his child. Not to punish. Jesus took that. But to discipline. Because I'm in Christ, not only am I accepted and secure, because I'm in Christ, I am significant. I have a settled purpose. No part of my life is meaningless. No part of my life is insignificant because I belong to him. I am a child of God. Jesus... My hope in life and death, the saving one, gives me purpose because I am part of the kingdom rule of God. I am now salt and light. I am an ambassador for Christ. I have a settled purpose. Those who trust in Christ are secure in Him forever. I'm going to have you look at two passages as we wrap this up. Turn, if you would, if you're in Ephesians, back to the left, to 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. To 2 Corinthians. If you go to Romans, you're a little too far. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll finish in Romans. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 11. Paul writes, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. We're not trying to, con to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, speaking of those suffering for Christ, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Changed identity, 
changed future, changed purpose. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that passage, you will see the theme of the book of Ephesians, that God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ. Turn back to the left some more to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 31. Paul again, same author as Ephesians and the Corinthian letters, says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God chose you, set his love on you, his affection on you, so completely that he was willing to sacrifice Jesus for you while you were his enemy. Do you really think he's going to let you go now? Do you really think that anything that comes into your life is because it's bad for you? His plans can't be thwarted. Why would he hold back from you anything good that costs him less than his son when he's already given you his son? Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You can keep going with this. What can separate you? Can your own foibles separate you from the love of God in Christ? Certainly not. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The devil can't take you from him. Angels and demons can't get in the way. It is impossible for you to fall far enough to be separated from God. He does it. 
He makes you secure in Christ. All that God does to give life to His people, He does in Christ. Leaving no room for fear. Those who trust in Christ are secure in Him forever. Regardless of fears, feelings, or failures. Because our destiny does not depend on us, but upon Christ. Let's pray. Father God, You have called us to Yourself. The call goes out to everyone. The Lord said, Many are called, but few are chosen. Father, I want to ask You right now, in front of all these people, to continue by Your Spirit to move in the hearts of those hearing this who have not yet received Christ. They have not humbled themselves to the place of ceasing hostilities, of surrendering, giving up the fight. Still holding on to those petty things that are blocking them from what they already know in their heart is the right thing. Shatter that hardness, Father. Take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that is soft and responsive to you. Ah, Father, your grace to us is so great. This, This earth cannot contain the glory of your Son. And you have poured out your grace in such a way as to unite us to him so that we are one with him in spirit. You have made everything that is spiritually true of your only begotten son, spiritually true of those who are reborn in him and chosen by you for adoption. To the praise of your glorious grace, hallelujah. Father, for those of us who are in You, I pray that You would give us the confidence and security of knowing that it's not about us. Take our focus off of ourselves. Father, protect us even from the the over-attention with trying to stop sinning and cause our focus to be on Jesus to see Him as most precious so that when we are chasing Him, the sin that so easily entangles us becomes less and less attractive to us. Father, help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus so that the things of this earth become strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Now, Lord, as we, as we close our service, as we sing of Christ, the Saving One, give us a passion for those who have not heard. Father, how can they believe if they don't hear? And how can they hear if we don't tell them? Give us a passion to save those we love from eternal death 
by showing them where life is found. Regardless of the cost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.